Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. So, Boris Johnson is leading Britain towards a no-deal Brexit and possibly an election as he promises new money for the NHS and all manner of other things. But he's also promoting the idea of free ports. Today on the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keane, we look at the idea of free ports and whether they could be a big winner for Britain post-Brexit or are they just a way of keeping some car plants open in the turmoil that ensues. I'm Phil Dobby. That's today on the Debunking Economics podcast. Yes, Boris Johnson wants to introduce free ports in the UK, 10 of them after Brexit, which the International Trade Secretary Liz Truss has said will create thousands of jobs. No tax revenue, of course, but uh, but lots of jobs. Well, I guess those people who've got those jobs will be paying income tax. Uh, and the idea of free ports is very simple. You can import goods, do something to them, or perhaps not, uh, and re-export them without paying any taxes or any of that cumbersome paperwork that we associate with importing and exporting. Now, there's nothing new about them. Uh, Britain had them before, and there are several thousand of them worldwide, supposedly employing around 66 million workers. So, Steve, I mean, this is an area, really, isn't it, that looking at this sort of thing that, that first got you involved and interested in, uh, in in the world of economics, isn't it? Yeah, not so much actually interested because I've already done my uh, undergraduate arts degree majoring in economics, so I must, must clarify that. Um, but the first position I got in out, out of um, specifically getting international uh, economic policy was working for the Australian Freedom from Hunger campaign. And at the time, before I started doing that, I was looking at the whole idea of multinationals relocating production from the first world to the third world. And, of course, a major reason why they were doing that was to take advantage of lower wages. And I'm not quite certain which country did it first, but you're talking back in the, the, the late 1970s, that at the very latest, because I was writing, I was writing about this during the 1970s. So mm. countries would open up free trade. They called free, tra- free trade zones, or they called them export processing zones, EPZs, and a lot of them were based in countries like uh, like uh, Malaysia initially, uh, Indonesia, and so on, because these countries already had, a, of course, a, a strong uh, ex-colonial link. And one of the first things they wanted to do uh, after the political uh, contretemps of pushing out the colonial overlords, which, of course, they weren't supposed to have to do. The colonials were supposed to have left voluntarily. That's the agreement they made with all the liberation movements in, in Latin in, in Southeast Asia uh, when the when those movements supported the uh, Allied troops against the Japanese. But let's not discuss that little uh, political failing. <laughs> uh, but in, in the aftermath, they, they, they those countries had the best uh, links, as you imagine, like from Malaysia, you know, having been an ex-UK colony. Um, had a reasonably good political link with the UK. Uh, the Philippines, of course, being, for all intents and purposes, for quite some time, an American colony, they could do it easily. I mean, so all these countries which were not the major actors today got in there first. Mm. And what they were basically offering was no no, no uh, import tariffs on anything you bring into the country, uh, no export tariffs either, huge tax concessions from the 
developing country. Yeah. And of course, low uh, wages. And we're talking about phenomenal margins. I mean, not, um, yeah. know, not, not comparing UK wages to, uh, to American wages, but uh, comparing uh, you know, Indonesian or Malaysian wages at the time, which were at least a factor of 10 cheaper. So this, all of this favours, of course, international corporations then. It doesn't help develop new national firms in those economies. It just helps international corporations uh, come in and uh, get advantage of that, uh, well, that, that was, of that, those low wages. That was the initial thing. I mean, you can ultimately then see a lot of uh, local companies opening up as service service wings or component manufacturers for the for yeah. the multinationals themselves. And, of course, that's uh, – but that that's the, – the, what we went wrong with that strategy for virtually every country that did it was that the firms were 100% foreign owned and the control as well as the profits were going offshore yeah. being taxed. Now the Chinese, and this, I had the, my first exposure to the Chinese when I uh, ditched the Freedom from Hunger campaign because they wouldn't support my idea about running conferences between journalists from different countries. Uh, so I, I resigned from the Freedom from Hunger campaign and started doing it myself. Bumped into um, somebody at a, a conference where I spoke on the idea of issues oriented journalism. Happened to be the uh, she was happened to be the director of the Australia China Council, and I then took a group of I think it was nine Australian chi- uh, journalists for a conference with about twenty or thirty Chinese journalists in Beijing in 1981-82 during the trial of the Gang of Four. This is mm. one of the fun little things I've done as a side activity, and we then did a, a, a tour of of China under. Um, of course, in transition to Deng Xiaoping's role, uh, while they were literally doing the trial of the Gang of Four was being broadcast through loudspeakers all over the city as we were having our seminar. Um, so that's that's the period of time. And we've shown all these various attempts by the Chinese to industrialise. And we'd like to be taken to a province in, you know, we'd go to, say, say uh, Sichuan province, and we'd taken to see a, um, I've forgotten, I think it was a furniture manufacturing firm. And they had this massive uh, boost to their production in this particular commune. They were still organising communes at the time, and they were exporting most of their products to uh, to Shanghai. For you know, they're making you know couches and stuff like that, exporting to Shanghai, and they were then sold around the country. And we, we had to always pry to find out what the hell was going on. Um, but the, I finally got the answer that they how did they make the sales? Quote unquote. And I do I'm quoting here the translation. We sent out propagandists. We'd call them Abbott. Okay. Well, the propagandists made, made a link with a, with a state uh, factory in Shanghai, and they were taking part of the output of this uh, commune and rebadging it as coming from the state factory. Well, you know, you, you, that works for one factory, which is a show commune. You try scaling it up to the entire bloody country, it was bound to collapse because they couldn't all take over 40% or more of the um, in manufacturing business of state enterprises without bankrupting the state enterprises so that was nonsense right the shame- as as this getting us to free trade zones though so those this, this, those- this don't go away yeah this is, so we got we, we got that <laughs> We Just down. to remind you, the point of this podcast, but that's fine. I'm happy with the happy for us to take a side journey, so long as we get back there sometime. Okay, okay. we got down to the to Shenzhen, which is where the very first free trade zone was built by China, and that. Um, the, 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 that was the first time I confronted by what was really seriously intelligent Chinese management. And uh, the boss gave his a quick introduction and then gave way to one of the planners. No ego involved on in that, which itself was impressive. And the planner said, well, what we're going to do is we're going to, we are offering free trade zones, of course, the usual advantages of low wages, no regulation, no import tariffs, no export tariffs on goods coming in and out of the trade zone. But we also require any 
a foreign multinational setting up business here to have a Chinese partner. Mm-hmm. And this is the part that took my breath away. And within five years, the Chinese partner has to own 50% of the business. Yeah. Now, that Which was is, from zero, you know. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and, and that became what, the modus operandi, obviously, for what uh, foreign was, investment in China. What it meant was huge. Uh, basically, you're building a capitalist class using the export processing zones. Yeah. Of course, that capitalist class was mainly ex-communist party apparatchiks and some local, some you know, local uh, entrepreneurs as well. Of course, that's where things like Foxon and so on came on. So what happened was Chinese wages rose across the country, more on the coastal regions than inland, obviously. Uh, rather than the businesses then relocating because they're owned by foreign multinationals, they're owned by local companies. Uh, to some extent, they weren't allowed to leave, or if leaving was made, it was a decision involving the Chinese side as well. Yeah. And it, it said, this is going to work. This is going to work, and it worked like you know gangbusters. So that's that's the basic thing thing that made those work so effectively. And I noticed in that document from our Tory friend that twenty uh, percent of China's exports, China twenty percent of China's GDP, are made in these free trade zones. So that's huge. But what you look at was being proposed for um, the UK. Last time I checked, even though they weren't particularly good, UK wages weren't one-tenth that of the... No. Well, that's the thing, and that's my question, whether trade zones are great in that situation where you have a developing nation and there's an opportunity for them to, well, for transnationals to, to come in uh, and and start to employ people and get industry into, in, into a country that wasn't there before. Uh, I mean, okay, we can look at transnationals and say, you know, they, well, they, they, they do cripple wage growth, but you're saying the opposite. But they certainly, you know, uh, don't care too much about pollution and they cheer up, cheer up resources. Yep. So they don't play that fair, but at least it's, you know, it's growth that didn't exist in the economy before. So I can see it working in, in, in environments like that. But the UK, we like to think of ourselves as a developed nation. I wonder whether it really can make that much difference here. Well, you look at the figures that have been quoted in this document again, and they're not, they're not going to blow your, blow your mind. When twenty percent of China's GDP is a huge proportion of China's GDP, no argument about it. But the amount of money they've been talking—I mean, for example, there's, there's the example it gives on page twelve of the uh, uh, what is it called the oh Chatt- Chattanooga, the Chattanooga Choo Choo, uh, Tennessee's Chattanooga Free Trade Zone was found to be able to talk, uh, talk save as much as one. Million in component tariff costs on the 150,000 cars it produced each year. That's 10 bucks. Mm. Okay, uh, it, it, ain't a lot, it ain't a lot of car. So the margins aren't aren't huge because your underlying costs are fundamentally the same. Yeah, um, you know. So I wonder whether I wonder whether in fact the reason why the uh, Boris Johnson. Uh, and his brigade are promoting this idea is because it gets over that supply chain issue of Brexit, doesn't it? That, uh, you know, cars in freeport areas could still have parts supplied from Europe, then ship them back to Europe. We lose any tax revenue as part of that process, but we keep people in jobs. So politically, that is very important. It's a reason for Nissan and the like to stay in the UK rather than move to the mainland. Yeah, and I think that's probably the main story behind it because, I mean, really, you look at the numbers and, you know, I'm not about to get out the streamers and throw them over the balcony here in terms of the amount of money being discussed. But the, the two two points that do make sense about it are the one you've just mentioned, that, you know, this, this little region enables you to get around the... Uh, the, the so long as it's accepted legally by the rest of the world, of course, mm. um, um, because they could decide to impose tariffs on you on the other side, if they thought was totally trying to cheat the cheat the international trade rules. But as long as you do it, then you that that part of the UK uh, is outside the consequences of Brexit. 
so it can work okay. But uh, it's not exactly a large amount. It has, has to be started from some initial area. And, uh, you know, you, you, I think you'd need to just declare the, the south of London to be a free trade zone to get to the stage where it would have a substantial impact, at which point I imagine the European Union might object. Yeah, well, well, I mean, it's actually. I think the the, the interest is. I mean, my, a lot of that the, the car manufacturing plants, of course, are are up north and they're yeah. near ports. So, uh, for, for example, uh, you know, near Liverpool and uh, places like that, which mm. obviously are areas where you know you you need to try and um, boost the economy somewhat. And then, then, then so that then, then raises the question: Could it help? I mean, manufacturing yeah. is only ten percent of the economy as a whole. Um, and um, you know, you st- so maybe you know, perhaps it, it is an opportunity to grow beyond the uh, the manufacturing that we already have. Uh, yeah. this, but I guess we have to look and say, but the ready market in all of this, obviously, is Europe. The reason you'd want a free trade zone in Britain is because you want to service the European market. It wouldn't make sense uh, if you're bringing in, adding value, then exporting again. You presumably want to be pretty close to the market. That's why you, you particularly if it's bulky goods, you want to construct mm. them close to their destination, which is Europe. It's unlikely you're going to do it and then ship it across the Atlantic. Mm. Um, and therefore, you're still going to pay tariffs on your final product when you uh, export it to Europe. So I'm not really – have you really gained that much? Yeah, I mean, it's – part of it is also talking about simplifying the the, the uh, customs process, and I can certainly sympathise with that. I mean, I had, an, I had a few dealing myself with customs on occasions, and the fact that every damn thing going through has to be done, you know, step by step, incredibly laborious, uh, and you simplify it dramatically and you, you cut down the admin costs. Like another example they're giving – uh, in warehousing and distribution on the same page, page 12 of that report talks about custom processing fees at 485 per per, uh, per shipment. A large company with 10 warehouses would pay almost 2 million administrative, administrative costs. They can drop that to 25,000. Mm. And I can understand that sort of thing. You know, that, that's the firm looking at that. Yes, that's, uh, that's attractive. Uh, just to simplify admin processes because bureaucracy is <laughs> any it, it, virtually any lefty has to admit these days as well as as well as the right trumpeting about it bureaucracy got out of hand so- well it is it's you can see this for for brexiteers uh like yourself it's a it's a huge opportunity isn't it to stick one up the eu by saying well let's let uh, let's give people a more efficient way of uh, of reaching the european market without uh, all of the difficulties so here's a, there's an, an interesting example uh, if you of those things that a finished product don't have tariffs into the EU, but the component parts do, like textiles for car seats or for sofas, yeah. taxed at eight to twelve percent, the the car seats and sofas themselves have no import duties. So you'd be better off making those sofas in a British free trade zone than on the continent within the EU. Uh, so it sort of bends the rules a little bit. Yeah, yeah, and that sort of thing. I mean, it it it, it can be a, it's a pain in the butt having to fill these forms out. You've got to have a dedicated unit to go ahead and do it. And that's one of the, when you think about innovators starting off, then the last thing they need is to have to hire a bureaucracy uh, to cover those sorts of things. You want to put all your money into, into research and development. Yeah. So in, in that sense, those, those zones can enable local uh, manufacturers to move in and say, okay, we've got rid of that particular hassle. Uh, you know, we can delay that one and we can do it in bulk rather than doing it per item, start doing our sales and see what happens. So uh, those are the sorts of advantages that exist for local manufacturers. But again, you know, they're, we're not talking anything like the advantage that China got uh, 
No. Uh, to begin this industrialization process. But maybe for regional, I mean, you know, <laughs> you could argue that parts of Britain now look like uh, look like China as it was, and maybe it's not quite that bad. But you look at uh, areas like Teesside, for example, where there is high levels of unemployment, it has yeah. been for, for a long time. The cost of living is so much lower than it is in the in the southeast. And the mm-hmm. southeast and London uh, is moving rapidly to the stage where it's got 40%. 40% of the mm. UK's GDP. The rest of Britain uh, is sharing the, uh, you know, the, the 60% amongst them, which is a, a big chunk of the uh, of the population. I just wonder whether you had these, like, for example, if Teesside did become a free port, and this is one of those areas that's being mentioned uh, as benefiting from this. It, I mean, if it created jobs in that area, as you said, you know, then uh, uh, service industries uh, sprout to support those, th- that employment. There's more money in the local economy. You sort of get that sort of growth pulse sort of approach don't you where uh, then that helps the um, the whole region perhaps uh, education is ramped up to support these these new industries and we start to get more regional diversification if <laughs> and this is perhaps a big if if these free trade zones these free ports do actually attract new industries in yeah, that's the point. I mean, if it doesn't actually get new industries in of any scale, then it's not going to have much of a spillover effect of the, the ones that can be created courtesy of that demand. But, uh, I mean, in terms of uh, entrepreneurial centres, it'd be like making it into a, you know, a small version of Silicon Valley. Did I say Silicon? Sorry, Silicon Valley. Um, <laughs> probably both appropriate. Uh, uh, I think that's Los Angeles. That's Hollywood more. <laughs> sorry. More. Okay. Uh, that that That's... Uh, that can give you a bit of a boost with local innovators. So you can see if, if you, the simple idea of a, of a free trade zone on its own, to me, is not, not particularly a, a big starter. If you want to get industries developing in those regions, then often that, that gives you a spillover that lets you have a, you know, entrepreneurial focus or in, innovators focus as well. And, you know, given how badly, you know, you, you know, UK's probably... Both geographically and and on income wise, it's the most divided country in Europe, if not on the planet. Um, so something which at least means they direct some of the activity towards the, the northern section of the country is desirable, as well as what I'm hoping to see, which is a, a devaluation in the pound to enable the uh, uh, because because the huge cause of that level of the pound these days is the impact of the finance sector. Yeah, uh, and the and the and the desire for a high pound, which I think is in terms of manufacturing at one point, if, if that's a consequence of a successful manufacturing sector as it was for Japan, then great. If it's the cause of a, of a it caused a declining manufacturing sector as it has in the UK, then that's terrible, and that's the situation the UK has been in for you know going on 30, 40 years. That your point about manufacturing being ten percent of the UK economy, I always like to juxtapose that with what it is in Germany. When uh, when when the uh, European currency unit began, I think manufacturing in Germany was about ten percent, twenty percent of GDP, and ditto for England of the order, like about eighteen uh, percent. Fast forward, Germany it's still twenty percent, uh, UK it's ten. So uh, mm. you know, it's something which actually gives you some push to manufacturing domestically. Uh, would be desperately overdue in the UK. Well, I mean, we do have free ports of of, of a sort, don't we? In that the uh, the Channel Islands, the Isle of Man, the British Virgin Islands, Gibraltar, they're they're tax havens anyway. Uh, not quite free ports, but uh, of course, you know what happens when you ha- uh, you have. Uh, 
uh, tax havens, then uh, you get, obviously, not a lot of manufacturing going on in, in these places. It is the finance industry which is being driven. Well, being driven by these places, or maybe not even being driven by these places, they just happen to have an address in those place, places and uh, and a very small office. So it's, it's uh, you know, so it's okay in the service sector to try and uh, uh, develop through through tax evasion or by simplifying the, the, the process and the, the paperwork. We're sort of doing the same thing for manufacturing if we go down this road. Yeah, I know. So, you know, it, uh, it, it, it's got some potential to work, but it's it's not uh, not a, uh, you know, like I can see it being trumpeted as, as the, the hallelujah, the, the saving grace of the uh, of the UK, and its end effect will be relatively trivial unless it's, unless it's hopefully – uh, combined with an incubator attitude for those regions as well. Yeah, but it does sound like it's it. As I said earlier, it's really just a way of maintaining those supply chains for industries that are that that we risk losing. But in particular, yeah, yeah. The, the the car manufacturing industries. Yeah. But yeah. of course, in the process, we lose any corporate tax. So the only the only income we're making from these areas is the income that we're getting from the people being paid. So it is a step backwards from that point of view. And that's where the Chinese were different because they said you've got to have 50% ownership of, by the local joint yeah. partner within five years. Now, you try doing that in the UK. It ain't going to happen because the advantages to foreign multinationals are trivial because the wage difference, differential, although it exists, is nothing like it was between the United States and China in 1981-82. Well, and then if automation replaces people, uh, then there's no national benefits from a free port. Yeah, yeah. So it, it's. Uh, I think it's. Uh, uh, you know, you've just, given away a chunk of land, but you're not yeah. really getting any income from. I, yeah, it. I, I think it, it, it was sort of thing which will end up being, you know, a, a, a moderately the best you can hope for is being moderately successful, more likely a failed policy. Um, mm. Yeah, but it, and, and, and but, so it'll look like they're doing something, but the outcome is not really. So if we're saying, just following through this logic in Boris's mind, if we're saying that we don't consider uh, corporate tax for export-based industries as being particularly important to us, we'd rather have free trade zones that created employment or at least sustained employment, Mm. and we've got this big concentration of wealth in the southeast of England, then why wouldn't we say, well, okay, for manufactured goods, let's just take anywhere north of Watford and call that a free trade zone. So, I mean, because corporate tax as a whole, yeah. it's about 3% of GDP. Yeah. There seems to be a race to the bottom around the world for, you know, who can have the lowest corporate tax. For example, we had no corporate tax. Microsoft would shift from Ireland if there wasn't a, a, a corporate tax to pay, although I'm saying it should just be for manufactured goods. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you could see that, I mean, that would, if, you know, if, if, uh, if Boris is wanting to stick one up the Europeans, that would be a surefire way of doing it, wouldn't it? So, well, okay, let's 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 win this race to the bottom. If you're in the north of England uh, and you want to manufacture, uh, we'll just take the we'll just take the jobs. Thanks. Uh, we'll forget about the corporate tax because it's not yeah, that, that important in the scheme of things. And I, well, I can certainly think of being a way this is being spun inside the Tory Party itself. Mm. Yeah. So the, is it that's, isn't necessarily a bad thing. Um, well, I think the European Union might think, excuse me, that's a con job. You, you've declared yourself to be, you, you know, not, not in terms of GDP, obviously, but in terms of area, you've declared three quarters of the country to be to be a free trade zone. Uh, no, we're going to whack uh, retaliatory tariffs on you no matter what you say when you try to export those goods into the European Union. So, you know, I mean, to me, one of the things which is which is intriguing about this whole thing is that 
Um, one, of course, if you're looking at what happened to America versus China, when an American corporation relocated production from America to China, it then faced a little transportation barrier called the Pacific Ocean. And the amount of shipping that was involved in this was 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 a huge and a huge part of the contributor to uh, but not just carbon dioxide, but pollution in general uh, is coming out of the shipping that's now part of the relocation of production and transnational shipping goes one part of the world to the other. Um, that may be something which isn't quite so possible if we start to take global warming seriously. So mm. it doesn't particularly matter if you're talking the English Channel rather than uh, rather than the Pacific Ocean. But this is all a philosophy of outsourcing, yeah. uh, and the outsourcing made sense when there was an enormous cost advantage as there was for American corporations back in the 80s and 90s, and even the early 2000s to ship stuff to China. But with the with the increase in wages, you're looking at there the they didn't have all the supply chain issues. And what Dear Donald is doing is pointing out to multinationals that it ain't necessarily a good thing to have your supply chains cutting through several tariff uh, administrations because he's going on the warpath with tariffs and with um, you know, trying to battle to bring about a balance of trade with every country in the world individually, which was his, his, his overall policy of no export surplus for America more likely. Um, you think this just isn't worth the hassle on the supply chain. It just isn't worth the hassle. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and on that geography thing, we look at Dubai as an example of a successful free trade zone. But um, I mean, it's, it's a very large one, obviously, but it's also very centralised. So, so I'm even uh, I'm not even sure whether the north of England is centralised enough for companies wanting to reach markets where presumably the focus is in Europe, obviously the south coast. But the areas that where we really want to try and uh, bolster the economy, the north of England, obviously the further north you get and you get into Scotland, the further you get from Europe. Yeah, um, but I, yeah. But I think it, it may just be if you say it's, if it's a t- if you treat it as a regional policy and an attempt to revive manufacturing and uh, and, and tied up with a uh, some form of incentives for entrepreneurs as well, um, then, you know, it's got some capacity, but it ain't a magic wand. And I can see this being waved as a magic wand during the next, whenever it's going to be, election involving Boris Johnson. Yeah. No, you, yeah, <laughs> I don't think it's almost certainly the, there's an election on the way, the way he's all his spending promises and the fact he's only got a majority of one and he wants to try and get Brexit through. Just one final point on free ports then. So, mm. I mean, uh, the fact there's not very much paperwork, uh, you can see the the potential. You could import cocaine from Colombia. Uh, you could import those picture frames from China and uh, set up a business inserting the cocaine into those picture frames and uh, exporting them away from prying eyes. And I think this is often, you know, one argument that's given, isn't it? That if you that we've got those regulations for a reason by saying, well, we're going to get rid of them, then that just uh, introduces the option for foul play. Yeah, and the other thing about regulations too is always seen as being anti-productive and believe me, I've got plenty of experience of that in the academic sector. But uh, often the regulations mean, oh, you know, you may, maybe you should make your buildings without flammable exteriors and, uh, and can set up standards like that that mean you don't end up with disasters like Grenfell, not that I'm, not that I'm relating Grenfell to trade policy to the UK, but regulations are often part of maintaining a quality standard and we're having a lot of fun watching the buildings in Australia fall over right now yes because the the regulation of uh, ready met building standards was outsourced to the developer who paid a nice little fee to a a private consultant to say whether it met the standards tick the box and then the building falls over yeah that is astonishing isn't it there's Mm. there's buildings still unoccupied in Australia, uh, brand new buildings that people have been evacuated from. Absolutely, absolutely astonishing for a, a first world country, uh, we're told. But so it seems like you're saying then, really, for this to work, I mean, first of all, the advantage, it, it's um, 
it, it's no magic solution for not it to work. Job. It's yeah. it's it's really got to be not just retaining those, those those industries, which is clearly the reason why it's happening. Retaining the the, the car manufacturing plants. That's I mean that's got to be the, uh, the the story behind all of this. But for it to be, to be a serious attempt to try and bolster manufacturing. Uh, and and do as well as Germany. I mean that that's a major transformation. This would be a a good way of starting it, but it needs to be supported by investment in education, resources, infrastructure, all that sort of good stuff. And that's what I have, we we, you know, we haven't seen yet. And I don't think the British ruling class has any idea of what's involved in that. Pardon me, being rather race rather classist about it. But I, <laughs> I let me finish with my favourite example of what what Germany is actually like on that front. I went to a a, a seminar in Bonn where the my host asked me to stay at his house rather than in the, the conference facilities. I thought it would be, you know, 13 kilometres away. No, it was 130 kilometres away in the countryside, town of 5,000 people. Uh, we, it happened to be the same day that they had an annual concert uh, in the open air in the, of the caldera, extinct caldera, near the town. So 5,000 people, everybody is there. We, we walk past an old couple sitting on a bench, uh, you know, say Helga and, uh, and uh, Eric or God knows what. And uh, we, our host comes up, chats to them, and walks and says, "They own the, like, the major business in the village." And I was about to guess, I, you know, my mind, well, what, what are we talking about now? Processing uh, a r- rural products, you know, liverwurst and stuff like that. He said, "No, satellites." Mm. Yeah, five thousand making satellites. Yeah. So uh, you know, that's that focus upon manufacturing, uh, which the UK desperately needs to get back again, ain't going to be done by simply bringing in a policy of free trade zones. Well, no, and that can be done by just with tax incentives in the current economy. I mean, if you're if you're talking about uh, uh, setting up uh, domestic, I'd say free free ports are going to favour transnationals, aren't they? More yeah. than more than national firms. If you want to encourage national businesses to be innovative, um, then you've got to give them the the infrastructure they need locally and you've got to give them some forms of of, of tax incentives for example yeah. you know the, the ability to build factories without paying uh, rates and all that sort of stuff for for a period of time and so this is sort of a backdoor way of doing the same thing and something they can actually win uh, in, in typical borough style shout it from the rooftops as an ultimate solution yeah but it's but it, it it's not doing the same thing is it because no, it is no. helping international companies come in it's giving them the same edge as a as a domestic company yeah that's right so, as you say, it's uh, j- election tactics, isn't it, really? I think we're both agreed on that. Um, but, look, better than doing nothing, I suspect. Better than seeing those car plants disappear. Uh, yeah. Steve, got to go, uh, if for no other reason. And then I've just gone and poured a cup of coffee all over myself. So, oh, dear. Uh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> got to go and clean up. Uh, catch you next time. Okay, mate. Bye. And, look, you know, Boris wouldn't be trying to promote a con job at us, would he? I mean, he wouldn't be suggesting something that looks good in the headlines, but when you boil it down, it doesn't really change too much. Well, we will find out as he continues his no-deal Brexit agenda. It's going to be an interesting couple of months, isn't it, in the UK? Look, more next time on the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. See you next week. 
If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.